Kali, Kafali onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charged for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not that the soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed that with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Flashed all their sabres bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabring the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from the sabre stroke, shattered and sundered, then they rode back. But not, not the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honour the charge they made, honour the light brigade, noble 600. There can be no final word today, or anything approaching it, on what threatens to become Europe's greatest international crisis since the end of the Second World War. So here are some historical snapshots which may in some ways illumine the developing situation. So why this poetic opening? I was looking for the moment when the Crimea first made an impression on the wider world of international rail politique. Alfred Tennyson's rendition of the mid-19th century moment when the British and Russian empires briefly clashed seemed appropriate. The charge of the Light Brigade. Fast forward to the closing years of the Second World War. Once the invading German forces had been expelled from their 1941-44 occupation of Crimea and parts of Ukraine, the Russian communist dictator Stalin questionably concluded that the minority of Crimean Tatars had assisted the Nazis. So in a little-known episode at that time, the Crimean Tatar minority, numbering an estimated 193,865 persons, were all put on trains and expelled. Most of them were sent to what is today Uzbekistan, some to Siberia. The Tatars were only allowed to return to what had been their homes in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. After Ukraine had been liberated by the Red Army in another little-known episode, recalled subsequently by Nikita Khrushchev in his memoirs, a Jewish anti-fascist committee was set up within the Soviet Union's Bureau of Information. It drafted a memo addressed to Stalin himself, suggesting that after the Tatar expulsion, the Crimea region be made available as a Jewish Soviet Republic within the Soviet Union. 
Stalin responded by giving full rein to his inherent paranoia. He saw the committee members not as loyal communists with an interesting suggestion, but as the agents of American Zionism anxious to wrest the Crimea away from the Soviet Union and to set up an outpost for American imperialism, which would be then a direct threat to the security of the Soviet Union. All the committee members were arrested. Most were probably shot. The only committee member who survived was the wife of the then Foreign Minister Molotov, who was still arrested and exiled. But in the closing months of World War II, the Crimea exuded a peace-seeking image. At the Levadia Palace at Yalta, a former seaside resort for the Tsars, Stalin hosted the final World War II summit with US President Franklin Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Historians are still debating the merits of what was then agreed. Forward again to January the 25th, 1954, to the decision of the Soviet Union which today's Russian President Vladimir Putin is seeking to overturn by force of arms, despite the fact that he regards the collapse of the Soviet Union as an unmitigated strategic disaster. According to a report in Pravda 55 years later, on February the 2nd, 2009, then-Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, on his way to lunch in 1954, merely told his colleagues, yes, comrades, there's an opinion to deliver Crimea to Ukraine. Neither then nor subsequently was any question asked or protest made. The leader had spoken, no one dissented. The discussion at the Central Committee of the CPSU took only 15 minutes before approving the proposed decree. When the Presidium of the Supreme Council of the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic met on February 19, 1954, the Central Committee decision was ratified unanimously, even though there was not a quorum present. As Pravda noted 55 years later, quote, no one had any doubts about the decision. No one wondered how the Russian-speaking population of Crimea would treat the decision. It turned out that such important issues as the territorial movement of regions could be solved without any difficulties at all. The delivery of the region from the Russian SSR to the Ukrainian SSR was just a formality during the years of the indestructible Soviet Union. Ukraine received such a gift on the occasion of the 300th anniversary since its unification with Russia. It would never occur to anyone back in those days that the USSR would collapse and that the Ukraine would no longer be a part of it, unquote. The pervasive belief then in the certainty of an eternal Soviet Union probably explains why, amazingly, there is no mention of Crimea being switched from Russia to the Ukraine in the two volumes of Khrushchev's memoirs. But Nina Khrushcheva, Khrushchev's granddaughter, now a professor of international relations in New York, recently suggested in an interview with the National Geographical magazine that personal feelings and even some remorse may have played a part in Khrushchev's decision to transfer Crimea to Ukraine. Quote, It didn't mean much at the time. It was just topography, where you put this or that lot. Crimea seemed to fit better in the Ukrainian model, which was more farming, richer soil. Actually, Khrushchev thought he was doing a great thing for Ukraine. He wasn't Ukrainian, but his wife Nina was from western Ukraine. 
He got to the Ukrainian city of Donetsk and worked in the mines there when he was only 16. There, in this amazing comradery among miners and the place where they work, so that connection to the Ukrainian soil was created for him then. He was also rewarding Ukraine because it had unjustly suffered from the famine in the Ukraine created by Stalin in the early 1930s when millions died, unquote. Fast forward yet again to February the 26th, 2014, to one of the most unusual acceptance speeches ever made by a people power political leader. Arseny Yatsenyuk had spent much of the previous three months, since November 2013, in and around Liberation Square in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, organising the popular people power uprising against the pro-Russian anti-European Union leadership of deeply unpopular Ukrainian President Viktor F. Yanukovych and sustaining those demonstrations after Yanukovych ordered the security police to open fire on the demonstrators, killing over 80 of them. When the president's security police deserted him, Yanukovych fled, leaving behind a government vacuum which the People Power demonstrators proceeded to fill with an improvised election. Yatsenyuk was chosen to be the interim Prime Minister of Ukraine, soon after which a BBC correspondent catches hold of him in Liberation Square and conducts this breathless brief interview. Ukraine will be united, and despite the fact that the number of outside and domestic forces try to split my country, we will do our utmost in order to preserve the integrity and unity of my country. What about separatist forces in Crimea? Are you concerned about them? We will cope with this. This is not the news that in Crimea we always had, I would say, different sentiments and different forces who tried to split the country and uh, who proclaimed separatism in my country. And today, in these uh, very dramatic times for Ukraine, uh, when Ukraine is facing a huge turbulence and uh, outstanding, I would say, political and economic challenges, some political forces uh, try to grab, I would say, Ukraine. And what about your relationship with Russia? Do you think you're going to maintain good relations with Russia? In order to maintain good relations, we need to build up good relations. So the, the key task for us is to build a new type of relations with our Russian partners. Because we strongly believe that Russia is not a neighbor, but Russia is a partner. And what about the reaction from the crowd today? Do you think you have the support of the people here in Independence Square and the rest of Ukraine for this national unity government which you're trying to form? It's crystal clear that people want to get changes. But the key task for the new government is to stabilize the situation. And uh, we are to undertake extremely unpopular steps. As the previous government and previous president were so corrupted that country is in a desperate financial plight. We are on the brink of the disaster. And this is the government of political suiciders. So, welcome to hell. Notice the careful way in which Yatsenyuk stresses Russia as a partner, though whether he still feels that way in the light of Russia's military intervention in Ukraine remains to be seen. 
One of the remarkable aspects of the people power demonstrations in the Ukraine has been the extent to which they were hitched to or affected by international relations. The demonstrations in Liberation Square were initially spurred on by the refusal of President Yanukovych to sign an agreement with the European Union while Russian President Putin went to great lengths down to personally offering a 15 billion US dollar Russian subsidy to the Ukraine, most of which has evidently gone into the bank accounts of Yanukovych and his cronies. Putin's energy vis-à-vis Ukraine contrasted with the EU's seeming indifference. But another reason for Putin's opposition to the Ukrainian people power movement lies in his fears for the future of Russia's naval and military bases in the Crimea. In 2009, previous Ukrainian president Viktor Yushchenko indicated to the Russians that they would have to vacate the bases of the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol by 2017. After Yanukovych was elected in 2010, the Russian lease on those bases was extended until 2042, which is why Putin stuck by and sought to subsidise him for so long. Now, of course, Putin has acted in a way which makes it unlikely that any Ukrainian government will abide by that 2042 deadline. Nina Khrushcheva, in her National Geographic interview put recent developments in an interesting perspective. Quote, Putin believes he is righting historical wrongs. Mikhail Gorbachev collapsed the Soviet Union and Putin is painstakingly putting it back together to have a greater country. But my thinking is that Putin is going to choke on the Ukraine. He is swallowing more than he can handle. I think Putin got drunk on Sochi. Unquote.